today on the podcast, we have Diane Brousseau here. Diane, thank you so much for being here. You are certainly a very accomplished woman who's worn many hats. Can you tell the listeners uh, like a synopsis or a bird's eye view of your experience as a PA thus far? Well, first, thank you for the warm welcome. I am absolutely delighted to uh, be here today. Um, so uh, I've, I've been a PA for about 30 years, and I'm like the original stem cell. I started my career <laughs> in uh, GYN surgery and as a hospitalist. I've done so many different things, including psychiatry and endocrinology. Uh, and today I'm an assistant professor adjunct at the Yale PA online program. I also serve as the uh, director for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I serve on the Dean's Advisory Council for uh, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Affairs. And I serve on the editorial board of the Transgender Health Journal. Uh, I, I don't like to be bored, <laughs> as you could tell. <laughs> I, that is certainly a very impressive career. And I have to say, I love your analogy of the stem cell. I'm going to put that on my resume. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. <laughs> now, for those of the uh, the PAs out there who have read APOG's Artemis journal, you recently wrote an article along with Elijah Salzer, all about sexual orientation and gender inclusivity and in healthcare. Now, I don't want to rehash that, you know, totally verbatim because it is a very, very well-written article. Um, and I definitely want listeners to check it out. I'll link it in the show notes for everyone who's listening. Um, but I do want to start off the episode going over sort of the basics so that any you know, medical student, provider, or really anyone listening can understand the important terminology. How do the letters in LGBTQ plus relate to gender and sexuality? And how do you approach understanding your patients' identities? So I think I just want to start by saying, I think the most important starting point for us is to understand that how popular culture and how the media defines things is going to be different than how um, anyone in a science or evidence-based position will define things. So what I what I say next may not necessarily align what, what you see on social media, but it's uh, it's best practice. It's what they use at the National Institute of Health and what they use throughout the Department of Health and Human Services. So let me just start by saying that there's there's different constructs that you kind of have to be aware of to be able to understand what bucket the LGBT content fits into. And I'm going to go back a little bit. Another way of framing LGBT is also just saying sexual orientation, gender identity, or SOGI. So we have to understand that the SOGI, the sexual orientation piece, is a separate, is a very different construct than your, your gender identity. One's about you know the sexual orientation, the other one being about how someone, um, their, their gender and their perception of themselves. Uh, and then it gets even more complicated because under sexual orientation, there's three separate constructs. So sexual orientation is not even measurable, right? It's it's a, sort of like an umbrella term. What we care about is our patient's uh, sexual attraction, sexual behavior, and sexual identity, right? And those are three separate things, right? So when you're talking, when your patient is an adolescent uh, who hasn't been sexually active yet, you want to know about their sexual attraction, Right? You want to start out so you can make sure that that person's getting the right kind of, um, you know, comprehensive sexuality education before they, um, you know, uh, to, to minimize their exposure to STDs, to minimize their um, unplanned pregnancies, which is a little bit different than uh, when that patient's already sexually active and you can talk to them about their sexual behaviors. Identity 
that's the bucket where the LGB fits in, right? So lesbian, gay, bisexual. And there was a study that was done and it looked at how folks identify and there's something like 50,000 different, like a ridiculous number of identities. And uh, it's, it's wild, right? So LGB, like even if someone doesn't use LGB, they may say they may say they identify as AG as aggressive, which might mean that they're a more masculine identified woman who's attracted to women. So there's there's lots of terms that have lots of cultural nuances to them. Yeah. Okay. So so that's that fits in. So there the that's where the LGB fits into the identity bucket. But the other piece is the T, right? So the T doesn't have anything to do with sex or uh, sexual orientation mm-hmm. or attraction or behavior identity. It's a whole separate piece that looks at uh, gender status, which so gender identity, gender expression, and your the sex that was assigned at birth, right? So. And we will get into all the little nuances about these, but the only one I want to mention on assigned sex at birth is this. Uh, After delivery, we don't run DNA on all babies. We just look between their legs and we assign a sex based on phenotype. And in the U.S., all babies are assigned either male or female, regardless of their genotype, regardless of their differences of sexual development. But in other countries, there's an opportunity for a letter other than an M or an F to be assigned uh, at birth. So you may see someone whose um, birth certificate has an an O or an X or an I or oh, wow. something else there. So we're in the US, we're a little <laughs> we're a little behind in this regard. That's so interesting. I never knew that. Random, random bit of information. <laughs> I I am all about the random bits of information. Now the I mean, you certainly covered a lot of this as far as the kind of the the basics of what these definitions mean. Because I, I feel like especially for those of us who didn't get that education in school as far as what is the difference between like sex, you know, biological sex, sexual orientation, sexual identity, behavior, attraction, all of that. Um, a lot of those terms might be confusing or overwhelming. Um, could you break down sort of the – and I think you, you – did a good job of this already, um, but break down the terms that we, you know, as, as healthcare providers, as just regular individuals need to know. And let me just start by saying that I'm in the, I'm in the same boat. I'm, I probably, uh, when I went to PA school, I don't recall the word transgender or transsexual or gender identity ever being mentioned, right? So when I um, first uh, found myself with a, a patient, a, a, who was transitioning, I did what any medical professional would do when we realized that we don't have, you know, we don't have knowledge of a topic. I set up a, um, you know, I, I set up a PubMed search and this is, this is 20 years ago, uh, for trans health because I realized I didn't know stuff. And so I've been reading the literature on trans health ever since. And 20 years ago, there's maybe two, two to four articles published a week. But just last year, there was one day when I got this email notification where there was like over 140 publications that day. And I, I share that story only because oh that's gosh. wild, right? I, I share that because I know that we now have good data available to really guide the care of our transgender and gender non-binary patients. So this is even more important now than it ever was. Uh, but I, but to answer your, <laughs> your original question, um, let me just break it down a little further. So when we talk about gender identity or gender expression, Gender identity is basically your innate internal sense of your gender. And you may have never even considered your gender identity because it's congruent with that assigned sex at birth. So you've maybe never spent any time or energy uh, with any focus on that. Uh, and that's the case for many folks. But for other folks, it, it becomes a little more complicated because they they have a, an incongruence and that they have to work through and understand and really identify. Um, and some folks, they get that at three years old and some folks, they don't get it till much later in life. 
The other term I want to bring in is gender expression. And sometimes folks will describe it as your external expression of your gender. But that's not necessarily true because just because someone's performing a particular gender in a particular way that is socially acceptable, it doesn't mean that performance represents their gender identity. And that's especially true in environments that are restrictive, like here in the U.S. So if you're practicing somewhere where Mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, legislation that is restrictive for uh, folks who are uh, transgender, you know, they... Uh, an individual may be presenting dressed as a boy or dressed as a girl. You might have heard the term drag or drab. That's what it comes from, dressed mm. as a girl uh, or dressed as a boy. So that that performance may be more about the social expectation than the person's gender identity. And then if there's a discordance between the gender identity and that assigned sex, we might refer to that person as transgender. And if there's a concordance, we use the term cisgender. It has nothing to do with sexuality. It has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Trans and cis people can be of any sexuality. Awesome. Thank you so much. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you cleared up you cleared up a good bit of confusion that some people may have been having. I had no idea that's what the the you said it was drab and drag. Yeah. Wow, never never knew that. <laughs> that's awesome. Happy to help. <laughs> oh. Now, when I was reading your article, you used a term sexual and gender minority rather than the the acronym LGBTQIA+. Yeah. Is there is there a preferred term for this this population? Yeah, this, thank you for that great question. So, um if you remember earlier just I mentioned about how um LGB really just fits into the mm-hmm. identity bucket. Um, if you, if we're only talking about someone who's LGBT, we're talking about folks who who identify as a being either same sex attracted or behavior. Um, but the but we're talking about the identity per se. We're missing. We might be missing people who have an attraction or behavior but don't identify. There's incomplete concordance between each of those different constructs, right? So someone may be attracted to a different gender or the same gender, but their behavior, their sexual behavior may not be congruent with that. You know, they may, someone might identify as straight, but might have a same sex partner or have had same sex partner. Someone might identify mm-hmm. uh, as a lesbian. And this is really common in adolescence. And I'm glad to mention this to an OBGYN um, audience even if someone identifies as a lesbian, it doesn't mean they're not having sex with someone who you know, identifies as male and can get them pregnant, right? So, so if we're just talking about LGB, we're just talking about identity, we're just, that's a really great term for a public health perspective. But if you really want to catch the full breadth of sexual orientation and gender identity, then we use the term sexual and gender minority, which represents everyone regardless of whether their identity is LGB, right? Does that kind of clear it up? Yes. Yeah, no, that definitely clears it up. And as far as approaching it from like an individual patient, Mm -hmm. is the practice just asking the person, hey, what are the terms that you use to describe yourself? How do you identify or what's the way providers should go about that? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked. So these days, there's the electronic medical records, the meaningful use uh, criteria for electronic medical records uh, actually has an opportunity for that information to be collected at intake. It was part of the Meaningful use criteria. Um, I, don't have, I forgot how many years ago that went through, uh, but it's it exists in a part of the chart that most PAs never go to. You know, it's in like the demographic administrative, you know, billing type section. We say in the clinical pages, but if you if you look back at the 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 pages and the, where the demographics are, you may see that your patient's been asked these questions and the data's already been collected. Um, there's four places where 
the the answer to those questions matters, right? So one is it intake uh, to make sure that you know patients can have their their uh, rights met when it comes to you know who their family is and who their next of kin is, uh, questions like that. Obviously, you know in the in the clinical. Uh, discussion with the provider. You know, we're interested in patients' uh, behaviors, their their sexual behaviors, and their identity as well, so that we can speak with them respectfully. But there's two other places where it also really matters. One of them is when we collect data for health outcomes, and another one is in patient satisfaction. And if you are in a practice that uses, for example, uses the Press-Ganey patient satisfaction criteria, they actually ask patients uh, the when who are getting surveyed, mm-hmm. they ask them the question of. Um, you know, if, if what their experience was like on the basis of, and then they've got like a list of like 10 things, you know, race, ethnicity, you know, um, language they speak. And two of those questions in there are sexual orientation or gender identity. And if the patient clicks on that, then it creates like, it, it opens up like another dozen questions to really hone in on what their experience is like. So another really important reason why we're having this discussion today is for patient satisfaction. Mm-hmm. The, the flip side of that would be for um, for health outcomes, and if your practice um, participates in the um, it's MIPS, the CMS MIPS, it's the um, incentive pay. They they actually collect data also on sexual orientation, gender identity of your patients. So if the health outcomes of your sexual and gender minority patients are not you know, up to par, you know you you risk we we risk hmm. losing some of the financial incentives. So there's lots of different places where this matters, from the moment a patient walks in the door to exploring their health outcomes. So yes, <laughs> yes, it's it's important. It matters. And on the individual level and the provider, it's as a provider, it's asked of a patient in many different places in many different ways. Awesome. So there's definitely ways for it to be worked into systems that are already in place. Yeah. But on but on the clinical the clinical perspective, as far as you know, that one on one, you know, how do you how do you get how do you have this conversation with your patient? You know, I, I think the Taking a, an approach of cultural humility is always a great place to start. And I there's some really great articles that are published, I don't know, maybe a decade ago that basically say that cultural competency is a myth that can never be attained. Uh, whereas cultural humility is is looking at your patient from the perspective that they have information about about themselves that you need to know as a as their provider that's important mm-hmm. for you to know, but you you can't possibly tell just by looking at them. Um, and there's things that we can do as providers, uh, both nonverbal and verbal cues to um, express uh, to our patients that this is a brave and safe space where they can uh, disclose this information without without fear. And what would you, I mean, I know we're going to talk about that probably a little bit later, but we can dive into it now. As far as what are those, like you said, verbal, nonverbal cues to create that safe space for your patient? Yep. So, so some of it may already be happening in your practice, um, even just asking uh, on the intake forms about your patients, uh, asking two questions about gender identity and assigned sex at birth uh, during intake really gives a sense to a patient, hey, this this provider, this practice knows what they're doing. They understand that there's a difference between these these two constructs. So just from the from the very beginning, those, those surveys, those uh, intake forms that ask about sexual orientation, again, give the same message. Hey, we, we care about all parts of you and as a patient, and we're, we're, um, we're going to be holistic in in that way. When it comes to you know walking into a room and introducing yourself to a patient, utilizing gender neutral language until your patient has a chance to disclose, and I, and I mean on everything, like rather than saying, "Oh, tell mm-hmm. me about your husband," you might say, "Tell me about your spouse," right? 
or, or tell me about your parents as opposed to, you know, mother and father. You don't know who has, you know, same-sex couple as parents you, until you give a patient an opportunity to say that. And when it comes to um, gender identity, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a, depending on where you are in the country, I think there's slightly culturally different ways of saying it. Um, some places might say, how would you like to be addressed? Uh, some people might ask for, um, mm-hmm. uh, what, what would you like me to call you as we, as we, start our visit today or, um, and, and give that space for the patient to come up with something that's not necessarily what's in your documentation as their legal name. We refer to that as chosen name rather than uh, legal name. And that's a, I think it's a, those are, are very important things to point out because it's, it may seem like a small change, you know, saying partners instead of husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, et cetera. But it really does create a more inclusive environment. And it's like you said, those small changes add up and can make can make all the difference. Now, you mentioned the nonverbal cues. What did you mean by that? Oh, yes. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. So it could be anything from um, having your pronouns added to your lab coat. I Just about a year ago, I saw a colleague do that for the first time. That's awesome. That's a really good point. And I asked him, I asked him, how, how do patients respond to that? And uh, he has a really diverse um, patient population across ages and cultures. And the way he, that he speaks about it, he says, well, you know, when when the patient asks me about it, I explain to them, well, you know, I, I want to be respectful of all my patients. And I want to, I want to share that this is, I know this is an important part of many people's lives and identities. And um, often even his oldest patients will say, oh, that's great. Oh, that's wonderful. Right. You're being so thoughtful, you know? So that's one way the LGBTPA caucus will provide you with a tiny pin that has both a um, transgender and a gay pride flag on it to uh, identify yourself as an ally. You can have like a little uh, pronoun. Um, it's kind of a little thing that hangs off of your ID badge, right? That says what your pronouns mm-hmm. are, just to kind of give folks the cue that, hey, I am open to hearing whatever you're going to say to me in these domains. And I've, you know, I've tried to incorporate buttons and things like that in my on my yeah. lab coat as well. Again, and I... Mm-hmm. The patient population I work with is generally on the older side. And I've had a couple of people point out and be like, what the heck is that? And mm-hmm. I mean, this might sound corny, but it's a great conversation starter and a way to open up that door and and start that conversation mm-hmm. where it might not have previously. It, it does. And and just while we're mentioning that, I, I just want to say that it is really important to introduce yourself by your name and pronoun for for patients for whom pronouns are not on their radar it will just they'll, they'll just sort of like they'll go right past it they'll drive right past it they won't even like realize that you say it that you said it but for patients for whom it matters they will absolutely tune in that you've said it uh, and we'll pick up on that cue and we'll we'll follow through that's a very good point so you just say hi you know if it was me say hi I'm Morgan Bechtel she she hers is that how you would say it or yeah or hey you know I'm um I'm the GYN Pike PA. My name is uh, Diane Brousseau. I use she, her. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm here to, to, to do your, your visit today. Um, yeah. Okay, good. And, and you just kind of go on and that just gives the patient a cue to say, oh, she's she can understand me. Perfect. <laughs> so, yeah. I love an, a good example, a script to follow. <laughs> well done. Well, well done. thank you. <laughs> Next, I, I want to talk about what happens if you, as we all do in life, uh, stumble. So you make a mistake. How do you handle or how would you recommend handling that situation? Yeah. So um, the best practice in that situation, and and let me just say first, that 
has happened to be probably the first 10 years that I uh, worked more intentionally with transgender patients. Uh, there were moments when the wrong pronoun, a dead name, came out of my mouth where it was least desirable. And I appreciate that my patients have shown me a lot of grace uh, when that happened. So your apology should be sincere and brief and immediately move on. The, the lingering that happens, the expecting your patient to mm-hmm. for, forgive you or give you some statement to say it's okay to move on. You can't wait for that because what you're doing is you're sort of, it, it's, it's just, it doesn't work out uh, and mm-hmm. it's not comfortable for a patient that way. So for the patient's comfort, a sincere, brief apology. I'm so sorry. I, I know how important it is to get this right. I'll do better uh, and um, immediately move on um, is, is really the way to, to approach that. Yeah, I feel like it acknowledges the error, but it allows us to get back on what's important, which is the patient. And it doesn't put them in the situation of having to make you, the provider, feel better for making a mistake when in fact, exactly. exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about gender dysphoria, what it is and why that ICD-10 code might exist in someone's chart. Yeah. So, and let me just start this by saying, um, if you are not the provider who does the assessment, who, who actually diagnoses somebody with gender dysphoria. And I'm going to, I say that kind of like an air quote, you can't say I'm making air quotes mm-hmm. around gen, diagnose and gender dysphoria, yeah. because we all know that gender is, uh, gender differences is, and gender diversity is common. It's a normal variation. It exists mm-hmm. across all cultures and it is not inherently pathological or negative. The, the term gender dysphoria exists in the DSM uh, not in the mental health section, but it exists there kind of like pregnancy exists. You know, there's an ICD for pregnancy, right? We know it's a it's a normal physiological process. It's not pathology. Gen- I look at gender dysphoria the same way. It's also temporary, mm-hmm. just like just like pregnancy. Um, but it's a it's a term that has um, morphed over the years from one DSM to another as we know more as the scientific community gets more data on gender diversity it's it's been able to shift and even now gender dysphoria is a term that is while it's in in the DSM five um, a few years later uh, the ICD eleven came out and uh, gender dysphoria is already outdated it's already been replaced with the mm-hmm. term gender incongruence. And every step along the way mm. has moved it further from pathologizing it and more toward recognizing this as just a normal variation. But it's but it's important. There's there is some history stuff that I do want to share with your your listeners around around gender. There's a there's a maybe a dozen um, articles that were published based on a prior uh, diagnostic criteria. They used to call it gender identity disorder. And often you'll you'll hear in the media, oh my gosh, 85% of folks were not still transgender after they went through puberty and after they became adults. Right? So we're saying that that young folks, you know, adolescents do not, 85% do not um, maintain their their gender into adulthood. And that is a myth. Even though it exists in like 11 or 12 different published articles, the rationale for that had to do with our, mm-hmm. the flawed diagnostic criteria that lack sensitivity. I'm sorry, specificity, pardon me, specificity. So what it means is that one of the criteria was essentially effeminacy in boys. So when when a person was assigned male at birth was um, perceived as effeminate for one reason or another, they would uh, get, you know, be brought into mental health professionals and they would get this diagnosis of gender identity disorder. And by the time they were adults, it turned out that it wasn't actually 
they probably should have called it gender expression disorder because it really wasn't about their identity. They were, they knew they felt good as boys. They knew they were boys and it was more their expression. And it turned out that they were proto-gay, right? These were young gay men that got caught up in this uh, selection criteria. And when they got to their adulthood, they could, and they went through puberty and they understood, hey, this is about my attraction, not about who I am. But that remaining 10 to 15% of folks that persisted, mm-hmm. that, that they were consistent and insistent and persistent in their gender identity in their childhood mm-hmm. and adolescence, they did stay, uh, their gender stayed what it was uh, into their adulthood. Uh, and there's more and more really great data in this regard that, that gender identity is something that uh, persists. So I wanted to clear that up because I know we're all seeing this in the media (laughs) and I want to make sure that folks know that we have better diagnostic Mm -hmm. criteria now, you know, that 85%, we can identify that 10% and 15% of folks uh, earlier in life. They don't have to wait until they're adults to claim their gender going forward. Now, let's say, and we can answer this question from a variety of ages because I'm sure maybe the approach is different with a, a, a patient who's younger versus one who's late teens versus 30. As far as a patient comes to you saying, hey, you know, I, I have a, a desire to transition and they're expressing those thoughts. How would you approach that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So uh, the form taken by uh, sex and gender is dependent on two things. One is whether the in- environment is permissive or restrictive or repressive. And then the second thing is that patient's development, right? So a four-year-old is going to present their gender very differently than a 14-year-old or a 40-year-old. So you have to consider where they are in terms of their development and where Mm -hmm. they are uh, in terms of your environment. So, you know, we can't, we can't necessarily change overnight the politics of our of the states we live in, but we are responsible for the environment in our exam rooms and in our operating rooms and in our emergency rooms. And that's where we as, as you know, licensed medical professionals uh, need to take some ownership of this. So when you speak with a four-year-old, the question might be something along the lines of, so are you a girl, a boy, are you both, neither, you don't know, uh, versus speaking to an adult, right? Would come, that might come across a little, we present a little differently. Gotcha. Okay. What What's the process like as far as continuing the conversation or setting a patient up with resources? What are the steps that are involved? Here's what's fascinating about this, and it took me it took me years to recognize this, and I'm so glad to share this this, this point. As a licensed medical professional, we we actually already have all the skills that we need to care for our trans patients. Because I thought about it one day and I kind of broke it down and I figured that if you can palpate, like if you can assess a patient for hepatomegaly, if you know how to check pulses, if you know how to do tanner staging, that's pretty much all the physical exam skills you need to care for a transgender patient who wants to transition. And I suspect that many folks in OBGYN and in primary care have already at some point in their lives written a prescription for some kind of estrogen or estradiol. You understand what needs to be monitored. You understand about asking about, you know, family history of any unprovoked thrombus, things like that. Like, you you know, like, it's just, we never thought about applying those skills that we already have in Mm -hmm. this particular way. Uh, So we, we really, we have the skills. We just haven't <laughs> plugged them in in this for this patient population. There's some really great agreement among the endocrine society, the U.S. Endocrine Society, among the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and even among American Psychiatric Association. They agree 
that trans health and transition, medical transition is considered primary care. It's not specialty care. And the folks that have been doing it for, for ages typically are in primary care mm -hmm. environments. Endocrinologists are not being tested on transition on their board. They're not learning this. They're, they're not more exposed to this or knowledgeable than than primary care folks are. And just to reiterate, if you're in primary care and you can, you know, check pulses and check a check a liver, you've got the skills. So Oh my gosh. Okay. Well that makes me feel a little bit a little bit better being someone in primary care. And I, it, everything you're saying makes sense. It kind of blows my mind, but it makes total sense. Let me just say the the hardest part is getting your patient's uh, chosen name mm -hmm. and pronoun right. The, you you know the medicine. The medicine is the easy part. Honestly, it's the it's the interpersonal interaction and uh, and it's there's if I can leave two clinical pearls uh, in my experience. This is just an N of mm -hmm. one, right? I found the medicine to be the easiest part. It's all based on our core medical knowledge. I just had never thought about it this way. And the second clinical pearl is this: I needed to invest very differently in building patient rapport and explicitly working on creating an environment where my patient felt it was safe to tell me anything and everything from the very beginning of the visit. Because some trans patients are going to approach you with the intent mm -hmm. to be stealth, meaning that they don't want to disclose any of these important aspects of their medical or surgical history. So so it's really about building rapport with your gender diverse patients from the very beginning when every moment counts. So what are ways that you, especially if a you know, patient has that desire to transition and you are doing the physical exam and you're talking about their physical anatomy, is there a way to, to minimize the discomfort around that conversation? Yes. And thank you for bringing that up. So whether your patient is transitioning, whether your patient had cancer, whether your patient had a mastectomy, maybe someone assigned female at birth who identifies as male or non-binary or transmasculine, whether their mastectomy was because of cancer or because of gender, whether their mammoplasty was because of a, uh, maybe it's a reconstruction for, for cancer, or maybe they're assigned male at birth. You, you, we want to know what our patient's organs are. It's going to be relevant really not just in, in this community, but sort of more broadly. So there is a recommendation of doing something called an organ inventory. Kind of understand what your patient's got going on. Maybe your patient had a vaginoplasty because they were born with a difference of sexual development. Maybe it's because they were assigned male at birth. But either way, uh, that information is going to be important to us as providers. Uh, there's a couple ways to do it. Um, one way is to do it as a sort of a an intake checklist that can be very helpful. Another way to approach it, if you do decide to approach it as a one-on-one -on -one conversation, then I often start that conversation by saying, you know, I, I am happy to adopt whatever is your chosen language for your body parts. Uh, I, I want to be respectful of, of, you know, how you, how you uh, identify yourself and see yourself. Mm -hmm. And so how do I, how do you want me to refer to, the, to you. Um, and, I, and there was a study that just came out in the last year that asked trans, specifically transgender adults what terms they used for certain body parts. And I can give you a, a quick sampling yeah. of that. So one is folks who are assigned female at birth who identified in, on the transmasculine spectrum. And what, by that, I mean the person could identify as male or any kind of non-binary or gender diverse, as long as it, they see themselves more masculine than sort of their 
they're assigned sex. And in that community, there are two terms. One is that even if they may have glandular tissue and uh, mammary glands, that place on their body is still referred to as their chest, right? So it's, it's chest tissue. And the second thing is that a very common, one of the most common terms that came up in this survey was not using the term vagina, but referring to it as front hole. When I have a conversation with a patient who's assigned female at birth, I'll say, so, you know, we're talking about sexual activity. I said, so do you have front hole sex? Mm -hmm. Do you have back hole sex? What's, what's going on? What do I need to know about what's going on with you? And then I'll let them sort of adapt accordingly. Uh, and then another term that was utilized was um, for people who are assigned female at birth, they replace um, clitoris or penis with dick. And I think, you know, we may see that as more of a slang term, but if you're a patient, I, I have a colleague whose patient refers to their vagina as their coin purse. And if you are willing to talk about her coin purse, she will tell you everything you need to know. If you say <laughs> the term vagina, you are getting nowhere. So sometimes we have to just uh, adapt, right? And MPAs are great at adapting. That is true. That is one of the skill sets that we uh, we have ingrained. You know, it's interesting. I've heard I've heard the term coin purse uh, again more in that kind of like slang. But again, it comes it comes down to, and I feel like you can say this about all medical care. It comes down to what the you know making the patient comfortable and asking them how can we make this a comfortable and safe environment for you. So yes, if coin purse is how we do that, then that's that's what we do. <laughs> for sure. Now, I want to ask a question from specifically the women's health perspective. Is there anything that providers, whether it's PAs, docs, NPs, whoever, anything that we need to know, any additional considerations when it comes to things like birth control or like breast cancer, cervical cancer screenings? Yes, very, very much so. And and lots. And I want to go back and propose that I wonder whether the term women's health will will uh, meet the needs of our transmasculine patients. Mm -hmm. So even just starting with that, I, I like to recognize how difficult it might be for someone with a masculine or male identity to walk into a pink uh, a pink space, right? And they could be gestating mm -hmm. and they could be there to give birth, but even that pinkness and even that women's health piece may be a challenge for them. So, so OBGYN, PAs and OBGYN have a very, um, are sort of starting out with sort of a challenging uh, environment, mm -hmm. strike against them in terms of the environment when it comes to their transmasculine patients who uh, may, will need your services as much as anyone else with those body parts. Of course. Do you have any suggestions on, I mean, I know we talked about general mm -hmm. suggestions, but mm -hmm. specifically when we're, you know, in the, again, women's health. Now I'm, now I'm sitting here being like, what do I call it? Um, yes. What are, do you have any suggestions? <laughs> let's, let's try reproductive health and see how that feels. Oh, okay. I like that. Which it doesn't necessarily, so reproductive health excludes sexual health, mm -hmm. kind of, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. So it depends. Or it could be reproductive and sexual health. I don't know. But yeah, it gets, this is where language uh, does not serve us well. We, we do really well with putting things in boxes and. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for, uh, for trying some new language on. I, and uh, your patients might tell you what their preferred language is. Okay. Again, <laughs> adapting and rolling with it. That's how we do it. Yeah. So exactly. if patients from the reproductive and sexual health perspective, mm -hmm. um, what are the considerations we make for those things like birth control, yeah. breast cancer, cervical cancer? 
You got it. Okay, so uh, going uh, talking about just birth control first. So if your patient is assigned female at birth, which means they have a uterus, they have ovaries, um, they may be having frontal sex with a partner mm-hmm. whose body produces sperm, which could put them uh, at a risk of an unplanned pregnancy. Um, as long as the contraceptive method is not estrogen-based, you're pretty much good to go. So whether it's progesterone exclusively, whether it's an IUD, um, there is a huge mythology in the community uh, that uh, folks don't necessarily understand what we know, that just because someone is not menstruating, it doesn't mean they're not ovulating. And just because someone is, uh, mm-hmm. and particularly in this in this community, I can't tell you how many patients I've had who have front hole sex, who are on their T, maybe they missed a week, maybe they missed a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although they're not menstruating, they found themselves the parents of, you know, beautiful, happy, healthy babies. Um, so yeah, so it happens. And so this is a conversation, a super important conversation to have with all of your patients who have the ability and capacity to, to be pregnant. Uh, if you're, if the patient you're seeing is a trans uh, feminine person who was assigned male at birth, I, I want to mention that if someone's had a vaginoplasty, it is a mm-hmm. blind cuff. And what I mean by that is it's not a uterine transplant. There's no, there's no uterus. There's no um, cervix. There's no ovaries. Um, it's a, it is essentially just a blind, a blind cuff. And we can talk later about uh, cancer risks related to, to the graft tissue. Um, but in that in that case, I'm not familiar with any surgeons who will do a vaginoplasty while uh, maintaining um, penile tissue or or uh, testicular tissue. So typically, someone who's had a vaginoplasty would be um, infertile. Mm, okay. So that, uh, but they still are going to need your your cancer screenings. Gotcha. And then maybe I mean maybe we can I guess dive dive into that as far as cancer screenings. Oh, yes. So uh, in terms of cancers, uh, there's, there's two points I want to share. The first is that there's um, recently published a 50-year data set uh, from the Netherlands. And what's unique about the Netherlands is that their health system is single payer. So they have data basically from everyone in the country. The second thing that's unique is that they're really advanced on gender transition and medical transition. So they have they published 50 years of data on morbidity and mortality trends among folks who have uh, medically transitioned. And what they found in terms of reproductive cancers is that rates of reproductive cancers are lower in this community. So for example, if someone's assigned female at birth, they went on testosterone, their rates of breast cancer are lower than someone who's a cis female. If someone's assigned male at birth, their rates of breast cancer are Mm -hmm. less than someone who's a a cisgender female. We're fortunate to have this really good data set, uh, this new data set to be able to know this, but it doesn't mean that someone doesn't need a cancer screening just because they've transitioned. They still very much do, and we still very much do follow the current guidelines and the current um, the frequency and, and, and time frame that's out there. The, the second thing I want to bring up is that if someone has had, a, whether it's a vaginoplasty or a phalloplasty, you want to consider the cellular makeup of the graft. So for example, if someone has a a vaginoplasty, they may have um, something called a penile inversion technique. So basically it's that keratinized skin that's typically on the outside Mm -hmm. of the penis that now is internalized, that sort of the outie becomes an innie. It could could also be uh, sometimes a sigmoid colon 
will be used. You'll you'll be aware of this. It's self-lubricating, but it has an odor. Mm-hmm. It's nothing like the odor which you'll know from, you know, trichomonas and other things. Like mm. there's some odors that you just know the moment you you experience it. It's different. And that and that's a normal, uh, that's a normal odor from a um this this uh sigmoid colon vaginal plastic. And then the last one is they'll they'll also use uh, the peritoneum. Uh, that's also somewhat self-lubricating, um, but the odor is a little, again, it's a little different. So the so the person who's had this penile inversion, a vaginoplasty, you're still going to do a pelvic exam. You're still going to use your speculum. You're still going to look around. But what you're not going to do is you're not hmm. going to swab a cervix because there's no transition zone, right? There's no, there's no cervix there. You still want to do an HPV swab. You still want to swab for STDs. Um, but your cancer risks are now going to be those cancer risks related to penile skin. The cancer risks in a colon graft mm-hmm. are those related to colon cancers. So just keep that graft tissue in mind when you think about what does my patient need in terms of their their cancer screenings. That is a very good point. That makes a lot of sense. And I learned a lot more about vaginoplasties. And I could, I'm sure we could do a whole episode on that as we well. Could indeed. <laughs> now, I'd like to dive into, you know, you said reproductive sexual health. What can you tell our listeners about reproduction and fertility in transgender health? So in terms of uh, reproduction and fertility, there's actually some, some studies that have uh, asked the community what their interests are. And I this is profound. Of the folks who were assigned male at birth, uh, who identify on the trans feminine spectrum, 94% of them expressed a desire to have children to gestate and to give birth. Hmm. And about 77% of them expressed that they would be more inclined to cryopreserve sperm if a uterine transplant was a realistic option. As far as the transmasculine community and people who are assigned female at birth, there's also some some profound numbers. Um, 10% feel that they are at risk of an unplanned pregnancy, but fear discussing it. Another 10% fear that they are at risk of an unplanned pregnancy, but they are actually uh, working on it and discussing mm-hmm. it. So the message there is uh, many of the same concerns that your cisgender female patients have are going to be found among your transmasculine patients as well. Oh, the other piece I didn't answer was related to fertility. When someone's assigned uh, female at birth and they have a transmasculine identity and they start utilizing testosterone, you know, we're, we're still advised on the label, on the testosterone level, it basically says that giving testosterone during pregnancy could result in some fetal changes. I I think that that's information that uh, may not truly turn out to be the case, mostly because of the number of transmasculine folks who uh, found themselves pregnant and gestated and gave birth and their, and their offspring were, did quite well. So, um, so I always say they have you know, happy, healthy and happy babies, but that but that label still is on the testosterone um, document. There are folks who will go on testosterone to masculinize so that they can kind of feel good in their own in their in their own skin. Uh, come off the testosterone and then six months later will go on um, uh, medications to help them to be able to harvest some eggs uh, uh, if they. If they're not someone who wants wishes to just stay but mm-hmm. wants to be a biological parent, so you're going to see the same uh, the same challenges in uh, in your fertility clinics. You're going to see the same trans folks in your fertility clinics that you uh, are seeing who are, who are in your um, or in my gender <laughs> affirming clinics. 
so so that's that's the one nuance I want to bring up around uh, testosterone. When it comes to um, fertility and estrogens and someone who's assigned female at birth, it has a drastic and almost immediate uh, impact on the ability to for the body to produce sperm. Uh, and the longer that a person is on a um, anti-androgen and on an on an estrogen, the less likely it is for them to have that ability in the future. So really the folks who are assigned male at birth and identify as female, they, they have the greatest risk of infertility. That's good to know, especially if, like you said, a patient comes into the clinic with questions, you'll be able to explain those risks with treatment. Now, I want to ask, is there a, a future trend in reproductive and sexual health that or you know, OBGYN that you're excited about, you want our listeners to be aware of? There are two. And thank you. I love that you asked that. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> One of them is related to ending the HIV epidemic. And I, you know, the, the OBGYN community has done such a great job of uh, just ending maternal transmission. And that's such a great model. But unfortunately, we're failing our cisgender females and our anyone who's assigned female at birth from uh, are not getting access to PrEP. Only about 10% of folks who are assigned female at birth who are wow. candidates, uh, you know, good candidates for being on pre-exposure prophylaxis are actually getting it. And that's a place where I think the OBGYN community has a great opportunity to really continue the trends. And I, I want to talk more about that later. But the other, the other piece that I'm extremely enthusiastic about is trans-feminine motherhood. What I mean by that is someone who's assigned male at birth, who's female, non-binary, gender expansive, whose gender involves the feminine to some degree. And I had mentioned previously that 94% uh, express the desire to have children, to gestate, to give birth. And uh, folks who are in OBGYN might remember back in 2000 when the, we had the first reported uterine transplant. This is an cisgender woman. There was a graft failure after about three months, but you know by 2014, Sweden had started doing uterine transplants. And at that point, I think six of nine had resulted in live mm -hmm. birth. And I mentioned that because from 2014 to now, those Swedish children are now seven years old. And then China and Brazil and the Czech Republic and Germany, they've all initiated successful uterine transplant programs. And here in the U.S., there are uterine transplant programs at Cleveland Clinic, at Baylor, at UPenn, University of Alabama's now in development, we now have a definition of success. We know what successful uterine transplant looks like. The goal is basically a successful live birth. And uh, then the uterine is explanted, it's removed following the live birth, typically at the time of C-section, a hysterectomy can also be done. But this is now moving from the realm of research, which will quickly turn into the realm of just something being offered mm -hmm. to our patients. There was a publication of proof of concept for a uterine transplant in someone mm -hmm. who is assigned male at birth. And they've worked out some of the details. Uh, there's there's two areas that have been explored. One of them is the technical consideration. So, you know, when you think things through, we might say, oh, well, an android pelvis won't deliver a baby as easily, right? Well, that's not a, that's not an issue because delivery occurs via C-section. Someone might say, well, a neo-vagina having a vaginoplasty might be a barrier. Well, we know that there are cisgender women who have MRKH, mm -hmm. the congenital absence of the uterus, which is, by the way, the number one reason that someone gets a uterine transplant. And many of these cisgender women have had both skin and colon lined vaginal canals, and they've been able to have successful uterine transplants. We know mm -hmm. that the, the vascular anatomy 
is going to be the same. The recipient vessels are the same regardless of whether someone's assigned female or male at birth. And the last technical consideration has to do with like the ligaments that support the, uh, the uterus. Well, the transplanted uterus is affixed to the pelvic sidewalls. The ethical considerations have been worked out. There's people with who are XY individuals who have carried a fetus, people with Swire syndrome. And if successful live births have been achieved in cisgender mm-hmm. women, and then enough time has elapsed that you know, trans feminine autonomy, the right to gestate. And it's time for also for there to be successful uh, uterine transplants to be happening in uh, trans feminine individuals as well. So I am just tickled about this. (laughs) I was going to say that is so exciting. That is so exciting. So it sounds like they're just kind of starting that process of, we know that the, the, the research is there as far as the actual science of the uterine transplants, but it just hasn't been used in this population yet. So that proof of concept paper mm-hmm. was only published in May of 2021. Oh, wow. Uh, and there's really, there's been, I think the total number of uh, children here in the U.S., um, let me think about this, it's probably been uh, 19 recipients have had 21 uh, babies, two delivered twice. Mm-hmm. And there's funding for about another 60 uterine transplants. So we're going to get a little more data, and I think this is going to continue. We're going to see this happen in our lifetime. It's profound and wonderful. So very exciting. <laughs> oh, that's a, that is amazing. I'm definitely going to uh, to keep my eyes out for that one for sure. And who knows, maybe we can have a future podcast episode or Artemis article on it. Keep our peepers out on it. <laughs> right on. Right on. Now, I do want to bring up a good point. So you are obviously extremely knowledgeable. Like you said, you you had a PubMed tab up (laughs) for all the different, all the new journals and everything coming out. I know you work. So this is a good segue to talk about that you actually work on the editorial board of the Journal of Transgender Health. How's that experience? Have you seen anything exciting coming through when you're when you're doing your editorial duties? I see everything exciting coming through, <laughs> I, and I want to recommend to my colleagues if you are not already uh, a reviewer for the Artemis, if you're not already writing for the Artemis, if you're not a reviewer for the Journal of the AAPA, consider consider doing it. It's incredibly rewarding. And you'll get to know what's going to be published long before it's published. It really is going to keep you on the cutting edge. And frankly, you know, your expertise as subject matter experts in OBGYN is so valuable to so many PAs, whether they're in a surgical specialty or primary care specialty, we all need to stay up on what's happening in, the, in our community. So for me, the work with the Transgender Health Journal, you know, it's a global journal. It's not limited to medicine. So there's some info and psychiatry in there as well, and mental health and surgery, yeah, so it's it's really been a, a I'm the first PA that's been on the editorial board. There's others on there now oh, as well, and it's just a, I, I really uh, enjoy it. Um, and I think I think in my mind the uterine transplants are probably the most uh, exciting thing that I've seen uh, in the last year, for sure. It's easy to understand <laughs> to understand why it's an extremely exciting topic for sure. When I asked about the future trends you're excited about, of course, uterine transplants mm-hmm. is definitely up there. But you you also mentioned your work with HIV. If I remember, mm-hmm. you are a you're a clinical ambassador for the CDC, working to promote their Let's Stop HIV Together campaign. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, and I thank you for asking. I'm very very passionate about this. I um, started my practice as a PA in the early 90s when we didn't have AZT or DDI and uh, we had nothing to treat HIV with. So in my career, in my lifespan, to be able to have the ability and opportunity to end the HIV epidemic within our reach is just something, again, something so exciting for me. And 
given the the leadership in the reproductive mm-hmm. health community uh, in being able to really end maternal transmission, I have complete faith that the OBGYN community will be able to really ramp up prep access for for your patient population. You know, there's a couple of there's a couple of things that I think are shocking to folks who aren't in the, you know, HIV medicine world and one of them is that when someone has HIV that uh, mm-hmm. if they're on if they're on antivirals and their uh, viral load is undetectable that HIV is untransmissible so we call that u equals u undetectable is untransmissible and with that with being one of the many ways that we have that we can actually end the HIV epidemic it's, it's just so important to make sure that we're screening right to make sure that we're screening mm-hmm. for HIV and being identified folks because there's a large number of folks who are living with HIV uh, and have no idea, right? So if we can identify in our patient population those individuals and get them into care, we have such a we're so much closer to that opportunity to um, to diagnose all people with HIV as early as possible. And I and I want to share the first patient who I've ever had a mm-hmm. HIV diagnosis for was an older woman. Uh, she was early sixties. Uh, she would come in with her grandbabies. And this is, I don't know, 1991, maybe. She was not the, what I expected as a new early career PA. You know, she's not a gay man. She doesn't fit what I thought was uh, where HIV, where I might find HIV. And let me tell you, I worked, I worked up for everything and finally had a conversation with the attending. I said, I've done this, this, and this. He says, have you tested for HIV? And I said, no, but I did it. And son of a gun, it was positive. So I shared that story because you're going to see uh, patients, young and old, who you're thinking, not on my life is this patient going to come back mm-hmm. HIV positive? And that has been my experience. And that's where this this missed opportunity uh, has been. Mm-hmm. So if we can treat people with HIV rapidly and effectively, and if we can if we can reach that sustained viral suppression, then we can prevent transmission. Now, there's another, the flip side of that is PrEP, which is the pre-exposure prophylaxis, it's either a pill or an injection that reduces mm-hmm. the risk of getting HIV. And it's so effective that statistically speaking, a positive HIV test on someone who's on PrEP is more likely to be a false positive than it is to be a zero conversion when your patient's taking PrEP is prescribed. Wow. Yeah. There's like a million people who could benefit from it. Less than 25% are. Oh my gosh. Um, we, we totally have to do better. Yeah. Um, there's two populations I want to call out if you feel if indulge me. Of course. One, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. One is the African-American women are one of the communities that are disproportionately affected by HIV, but also disproportionately getting access to PrEP. And the second thing is mm-hmm. among the trans masculine population. So someone assigned female at birth who identifies on the masculine spectrum, if that individual identifies as a gay man, they're getting their information from gay men's health sources, they may be getting some misinformation. And it's important, I think, for us to know that because they're also going to find their way into your Mm -hmm. offices. So that individual, if that individual is having front hole sex, Mm -hmm. their transmission, uh, it takes about 21 days for PrEP to protect them. When someone has... um, uh, receptive anal sex, it only takes seven days to be protected. So here's this gay man who's assigned female at birth who hmm. shows up at the gay men's health services and they say, go on prep and seven days you'll be covered. Well, he's having front hole sex and he's not. So when this individual comes into you yeah. for their, you know, for their uh, cervical cancer screening and other things. And then the last population I think is important for you to know is your trans feminine folks who've 
who are on estrogen and you might be seeing them that they might be coming in for pelvic mm-hmm. exam, uh, post-vaginoplasty. And in this, in this population who are on estradiol, the community is very concerned that PrEP will reduce their estradiol levels. So many of them will not take PrEP, but really this, mm-hmm. the study shows the opposite, that the estradiol reduces the level of PrEP's prep from instead of being the the typical serum levels that you would see with a uh, you know one day a week you know seven days of being on prep it reduces it to about the equivalent of being on four days a week now if they take it every day they're still going to be covered but they they can't uh skip any doses i'm going to stop there i know it's a lot of information i'm very passionate about this i love that i get to talk about it (laughs) (laughs) no no i think it's I think it is super important. And I'm definitely, I think, again, just like the the uterine transplant topic, I think we could make a whole episode just on this. And I think, I mean, as far as me, that's, that's all the questions that I had. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? How lovely. I thank you for asking. Um, I, I'd love to encourage primary care providers to offer prep as part of their core primary care uh, service. Uh, I would love for, um, individuals to be aware of some of the resources that are available through the CDC. And I know you're going to have things posted uh, online, but there's one in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, It's part of the CDC's campaign to stop HIV together, and it's called the HIV Nexus. It is a one-stop hub for resources for clinicians. It has the latest research and information. It's it's designed for providers. It has some information that we can share with patients. And the way you get there is cdc.gov backslash HIV Nexus. Super great resource. I encourage folks to check it out if they're not already comfortable prescribing PrEP or, um, you know, know how to navigate when your patient's first HIV test, you know, do an HIV test and your patient's test comes back positive. Uh, The other clinical resource I want to mention, sometimes maybe folks will just hear this and not get a chance to get onto the web-based resources. And and it's a resource called TransLine, and you can Google it, T-R-A-N-S Line. It is a wonderful point of care resource. It is the resource that most um, experienced Hmm. trans health providers use. You know, you might have heard of the Endocrine Society guidelines or the standards of care from the World Professional Association uh, of Transgender Health. I don't use those. I mean, those are, WPATH has like 22 pages of reference. They are not made for point of care, but TransLine, you can look it up in two seconds, get exactly what you need for, you know, not only starting doses, when to bring your patient back for monitoring, what you're going to need to order in the labs, what you're looking out for. And it's not even that big. It's like under 20 pages. So super great resources. Yep. TransLine and cdc.gov backslash HIV Nexus. Well, thank you so, again, so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, It really was a, uh, really an honor. I was just so blown away when you responded to my email and said, yeah, let's do it. So again, thank you so much. I was absolutely delighted to be here today for this conversation. May this be the first of many. And thank you so much for creating this resource for for PAs. We're, um, We're indebted to the time and talent that you share. Thank you so much. Well, that about wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with PA Diane Brusso. I want to give a huge shout out to Diane for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. I was genuinely fangirling the entire time. Now, I'll include links to all the organizations Diane mentioned in the show notes on our website, www.the-apog-podcast.blueberry.net, and that's blueberry, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, or you can listen to the podcast on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere the podcasts are found. 
You can follow APOG on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things that we're working on. And lastly, if you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. Well, as always, that is the end of my pandering. Stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Bye-bye.